Hey, this is Louisiana Sister Squad Podcast, where we bring you real information to enhance your truther lifestyle. I'm Katie. And I'm Tammy. Welcome Welcome to to the the show. show. Showing love and appreciation to a veteran can have a positive impact in their life, as well as a positive impact on our community. In honor of Memorial Day 2022 and veterans across our great nation, Louisiana Sister Squad Podcast, along with Hugs for American Veterans, presents the Bear Hug Challenge. All you have to do is upload a pic showing love to our military veterans on our Telegram or tag us in an Instagram photo using the hashtag VetsHug. At the end of the challenge, all photos will be submitted by us to the Hugs for American Veterans Facebook page. The entry with the best bear hug photo will win an All-American prize. Contest ends May 29th, 2022. Winner will be announced Memorial Day, May 30th. See our link tree for more details. Share the love. Honor a veteran. Join us. Take the bear hug challenge. On this episode, we welcome Sylvia Beachy. Today, we'll dive into her experience working in the private sector of the foster care system. She spent five years loving and caring for children, but behind the scenes, she was entangled with corrupt government entities, bureaucracy, and advised to lie. But today, she's here to tell the truth. Hi, Sylvia. Welcome to the show. Thanks, ladies. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to be here. have lots of different background and careers. So I started doing volunteer work at a group home, uh, which led to um, five years in the foster care system. So um, I started out just volunteering like one day a week and would just take out one of the girls for two hours a week. And then um, a position at the staffing agency come open and I started um, working as staff at the group home. So that was, that's how my journey started. So the um, position at the group home was a 72 hour shift, which was like Friday to Monday, um, which was great because we could see, I could see how the girls were growing. Like, and I interacted with them. I got to, to be part of their growth. So when you become a staff member, you don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have a social work degree. You don't have to have any type of degree. I had no degree. I had a, a seven-month course in Caribbean specialist, and I started working there, and then my sister was a social worker, and she got me. she's the one that got me into the position, and then I started uh, attending UGA for um, my bachelor's in social work, and that took about two years. I wanted to work with foster kids and I wanted to make a difference. And after I obtained my bachelor's, I went into case managing for the group home. So that's how everything started. What kind of activities were you doing with these kids? So the activities we would do was um, basically independent uh, living skills. On the weekends, I would take them shopping, teach them how to check out buy their items, things like that. And then um, I also taught them how to cook. So I was considered the mom of the the cottage. So I would choose a girl one week per week, and then I would teach them how to cook dinner and cook. 
and they had frozen they had frozen food but i would cook like quesadillas and you know real food which they loved and so um i did things like that with them every friday night we went to the movies well that sounds like you know your heart is in the right place and you're having good interactions with the girls that are there and it sounds like it was so much needed how long were you there before things changed for you or that you noticed something wasn't right? Well, I would say when I when I first started, there was only four girls there. There was only it was a, a sibling set of three and then one other girl. So it was easy. It was way easy. Like there was two staff. We had the best time. Well, then it started growing because the cottages could hold up to. I think, the, I think 12 girls was the most that we had. But when, when I got there, there were four. And then as the girls started coming in, there started to be, you know, fights, runaways, self-harm. And then that's when everything started changing in the, like the whole atmosphere of the cottage and just how it wasn't as it was supposed to be. <laughs> What was the first red flag that something wasn't right? I think it was the incident reports because when an incident would happen, we would go, we would tell, I would just tell it how it was. And then we would have to write up the incident report and you don't write it up like it happened. You write it as if you have to write it according to the policy, right? So if something happened that they don't want investigated, you have to word it so that there are no questions. So some things would happen that you would write in the incident reports that really did not happen at all. You know what I mean? I think the first one that I realized was there was this, um, one of the girls, she was traumatized. She had been sex trafficked and she was constantly trying to kill herself. And that girl would try everything, everything. She, it was jumping out of the car. It was um, anything she could th think of, you know, choking herself, self-harm. And we had the, the staff room. It was like a room. The girls were not allowed into it. And then right behind that was the, the medicine and that's where you gave out all the medicine in the morning and at night. So it was locked up, but we had just done morning medicine. And so it was me and another girl. It was early in the morning. None of the other girls were awake. It was probably like seven, eight in the morning. And she wanted to get at those medicines because she wanted to OD. So she went, she like got past me and the other girl and started grabbing the medicines. And, and so we're pulling medicine out of her mouth and we're on the phone with the crisis team. And my, um, my coworker says, here, talk to them. So I'm like, y'all need to get here fast. This girl is putting medicine in her mouth and y'all need to get here. And my coworker's like, no, don't say that. Don't say that. They can't know that she's back here. And I'm like, what? you know, I had no idea what I said was wrong because I needed help. I wanted the team to get out there and help this child. And so she she takes the back to call the phone back and she's like, I cannot believe you just said that to them. Now they're, and sure enough, they were saying, well, how did she get back there? How did she get the medicine? Where are you? You know, like, 
And I was just trying to, to get help. That's it. None of that was put in the report, her getting back there, us taking the medicine out, you know, that would be an investigation. So that's like where I started realizing, okay, we have to reword it on everything. So did you get any backlash from your higher ups for saying that? I mean, I know that in the moment they were saying, don't say this, don't say that. So what, what was your um, work environment with your peers following that event? They did say, you know, like, I can't believe you said that to her, like that they're not supposed to, she's not supposed to be back here. And, you know, it was kind of like that, but that, that incident, I honestly didn't get as much pushback as I did a lot of other incidents. Like that one, they just kind of let it go. They rewarded the instant report that was not investigated, that was not known. But uh, on other incidents, I got a lot of backlash. It sounds like from the beginning with the incident reports that they were going to, they had the intent to operate wrong. Yes, I was green. That's what they called you when you're new. You, you're green. You don't know how the process is. It's when you're there for a while that you understand how the process is and what you should say and how you should react. Yeah. What were you feeling in that moment being told, like, you shouldn't say that? And, and then going on from there, like, basically being told to word things correctly? Um, so a lot of it, I just was really naive in the beginning, but as it went on, I started like thinking, okay, this isn't right. This isn't right. But it's a lot of stuff had to happen in order for that, for me to catch it because I kept thinking, oh, I'm just not doing my job right. I don't know how it works. I don't know how the system works. I really thought it was me for a while, for almost like two or three years. Let's fast forward about three years in when all of these protocols requiring you to fabricate stories or not tell the full truth and being kind of bullied into doing that by your coworkers and higher ups. Well, I became, I became more defiant. Fast forward to when I was in case management, I refused to work for um uh, one of the supervisors because she falsified a report and it was, it was my case and it was my child that she falsified it on. I, I just became more defiant. Like, I'm not going to do this. I don't agree with this. Um, I was very vocal in my way of thinking, which is not the norm there. They don't like it when you do that. The incident that caused me to stop working for that supervisor. It was a child that told me she was in a fight or the foster parent put her hands on her, but it's cause she was in a fight with another girl and the foster parent wasn't at home. And the foster parent agreed with the child. They cheated, not disagree with the child at all. And the child, you know, like she, the child didn't want to move because she likes the foster parent. She just didn't want to put her hands on it. Foster parent was the same way. But the supervisor, because you're not, so, the foster parent was supposed to be at home, right? Foster parent was not supposed to put her hands on the child. And so the supervisor wrote the report that the foster mom was home. 
the child got into a fight and the foster parent broke up the fight. And that's how Marks got on the child. Didn't happen at all. Then it was my name on it because it was my child. So I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't, I don't want my name on that. I'm not writing any more paperwork on this. I'm not doing anything. So she called the director and told them that I was burned out and I needed time off. So they gave me three days off, but she, she said I was burnt out and that I couldn't do my job properly. So I took the three days, but when I came back, I was like, I'm not working for her. I'm not doing it. So they put me under another supervisor, but a lot of people wouldn't work under her because she would do that stuff. Let me ask you this. We're looking at supervisors that encourage lying because they don't want to be investigated. So it's the it's the norm at this point is everybody lies because they don't want to be investigated. Um, I can't imagine that an investigation team is any less corrupt. At any point up until here, have you had to deal with any investigations? Yeah, I dealt with quite a few of them in the group home. The first one was we had a child that had lupus and she um, she got sick. She had been at the group home for um, a few years, probably like four years. They took her to the hospital and it was within 24 hours she had died. And this is when I first started there as staff in the group home. Everybody was tore up. Like, I didn't know the child that well because I just started there, but everybody else was, you know, the staff, director, the the kids, everybody. And so they went to the funeral, and because I was new and I didn't know her, they left me there, and they got another girl that didn't normally work there, and they had us at the campus. Well, we're the only two people there, and in wants this investigator and he shows me his badge. And, um, you know, I, I've never been in, in there when the state comes in and does an investigation or anything. He's like, I'm here to do a report, da, da, da. And I'm like, okay. He's like, do you want to take my information? I'm like, yeah. I take him to the books because you have like the, the charts. There's like a medical chart for each child. And then there's also like their notes and everything. He, so he looks at the charts, he looks at the medication, he looks at the rooms, he looks at everything. I said, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I didn't know you were going to be here. Everyone's at a funeral. And he's like, what funeral? And I was like, one of the girls, you know, passed away. And he's like, well, nobody reported this to us. And I'm like, I'm like, are you sure? You know, like that's automatically you have to report it. And so I was trying to get in touch with somebody, but I couldn't get in touch with them. One of the charts had the medication uh, wasn't wasn't initialed, so it was on a different shift, and it was not my shift. Um, but because I had um, been on the grounds, I was the one that got written up for it, which that was the first my first write up, and I was I I thought that every time you got a write up you know, you'd get fired. So I was thinking I'm going to lose my job because I got this write-up. And apparently it's just, that's when I learned, no, it's just something that everybody gets a write-up. <laughs> you can have as many write-ups as possible. 
But, um, you know, I was freaking out about that. You know, getting the write up. It wasn't my schedule. It wasn't my shift. It wasn't any of that. But that was my first first time I uh, was in investigation. Another time, I think I caused an investigation. It was um, gang members. One of, one of the girls was a gang member that came in, and they were doing a gang initiation. And during the night. Uh, three of the girls uh, tried to suffocate one of this, the special ed kids that was sleeping. So these girls in the home, they're in the home, they're still involved with the gang, and they need to complete their gang initiation, and they tried to suffocate not just any person, a special needs person, a special needs girl that's in the home. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah what happened next well that whole night was crazy i wasn't that was not my shift i came on the shift the next morning but that whole night they had uh, property damage they had done they tried to steal a truck so um they had broken i think a window in the truck and they were trying to to wire it they didn't get it wired and then um they had sent me to talk to the investigator but they had sent me and they had told the investigator about the property damage in the truck. They didn't say anything about the child that was being suffocated. So I went in there thinking we were talking about the child. I didn't care about the damage. So I get there and he starts talking about the damage. And I'm like, wait, hold up. Why are we talking about the damage? I want to know about the child. Like, why aren't these girls charged? And he's like, what are you talking about? And I tell him what happened. And he stops the investigation completely. And it turned, he wanted to investigate these girls that I told him about. Well, that sent him out to the Elts Aidmore to talk to the girls. And then that's when I got a call from my director asking me what my intentions were. What was I trying to do? And I, my immediate response was, wait, you told me that you had reported this. You told me you had reported it, that this, these girls were trying to suffocate the girls. Yeah, we have, we have. Okay, then my intentions are not wrong. There are no intentions. I was following up on an investigation. So I got written up on, what did they write me up for? I think they wrote me up for another medical error, like a medical medicine chart error. And then I got uh, called in and had a review done and had like the whole panel thing. But um, it was because I actually had an investigation done instead of what was supposed to be done. Again, I'll... I just, I feel like I'm alluding to is not only are you just on this one level, there's corruption, there's lying. Just from that dealing with the investigation, it doesn't, it sounds like, you know what it really sounds like? It's like every other governmental agency. They're all ran like the DMV. Everyone goes to the DMV. No one likes the DMV. And when we talk about anything in regards to government, I'm like, think of the DMV, and that's how it is 
seemingly on every aspect. I don't know one great governmental agency. And the with the governmental agency, are you meaning the people that are investigating or the group home? Because the group home is a private entity, is it not, Sylvia? Yeah, it is. And so it is a nonprofit organization. And that's a lot of them are, uh, well, the majority group homes are nonprofit organizations. And then they're overseen by? They're paid off by the government. They That's where they get their funding from. Is that correct? Yeah, they do get their funding by the government. Yeah. And so the people coming in to investigate, this is CPS? Not CPS that, that investigates them. Now, CPS does investigations on the foster homes, like if there's an incident that happens in the foster home. But there's an organization that oversees the group homes and the nonprofit organizations. So many stories that we read regularly in the truther movement about foster parents that partake in um, children, sometimes multiple children. And then you see them in this article with a mugshot of like molesting children, beating them, just abuse in general. And I was just wondering, have you ever dealt with any cases like that? And um, how do you think that that's happening so often in the foster care system? Good question. So this goes back to my training when we were uh, have to complete a training. Um, and in the training, it was really good because, so if you look at predators, they will be the best person in front of you. They will go to church. They will, they will, they will quote the Bible. They will, they will do everything. You will love them. But behind doors, you don't know what's going on and there's no way to find out. 30 minutes, you have 30 minutes a month to figure out if the child is being abused. When it comes to you're going to check on a child and you have a few moments alone, are you allowed to ask something directly? Like, are you being sexually abused or is anybody touching you in an inappropriate manner? Or what's the, what's the verbiage for that? And is there an age? range yeah so you have set questions that they give you that you ask so one of them is do you feel safe in this home if you ask a child that every person that now you have to remember they have a case manager they have a manager from the group home they have a behavioral they have like three or four people coming in the homes and they're asking all the same questions so they kind of get adjusted to repeating the same thing. Yes, I feel safe in here. Yes, I feel. They don't respond any differently. And it's mainly because they don't trust you. I used to ask questions like, what does Mr. Smith cook for dinner? You know, like get them off of the track of the set questions because they become so adjusted to answering set questions that you can be asking them and they can be abused and they won't tell you. And then they'll, then you'll say, why wouldn't you tell me that? You know, they don't have a response for it. So do you think it's, it's one part, they don't trust you, but another part they're scared 
because, you know, if you find out, then the parent or foster parent will find out and they think they're going to get hurt worse. I think it's both. I think that um, they don't trust you. So you have to build that rapport, gain that trust. And you have to do that over months of 30 minutes, right? Then it is when you leave, what happens? Like, what does the foster parent do when you leave? And then it's also when they do say, I don't feel comfortable here. I don't like it here. I want to move. You can't move them. They can't, like, I've had so many kids cry to me and say, I don't like it here. I don't feel comfortable here. And the protocol for that is, do you see any marks? So you're like, okay, or you start looking for marks on the child. You don't see any marks because it's not physical. It's mental, right? And then you start like looking at the room. You, you try to figure it out, but there's been times where I called and was like, I want to move these kids. And they wouldn't let me move them because there was nowhere to move them to. Or the child wasn't feeling comfortable in the homes that they were placed in. So they were moving home to home to home. Well, when you start moving home to home to home, that looks bad on the agency. Not on the the child, it looks bad on the agency. Well, and the child, because then they say, oh, this is a behavioral child. They can't maintain the home placement. So it gets to where the kids don't want to tell you because why should they? You can't move them anyways. So they're just going to tell you and you're going to say, I'm sorry, I can't move you. There's been instances where the kids, because you have to remember too, when you have a kid that is sexually abused, they're, they become predators a lot of times. So a lot of times they'll go into other homes and they'll be, they'll prey on other kids. So there has been situations where you have to always like sit, know who's, who's in the house, what the behaviors are. And there has, and then there'll be kids that hook up a lot too. So you have to, um, we've had kids where they would hook up and then they would, and you would have to like remove them or um, things like that, or um, where I'd have to watch that a kid wasn't praying on one of the other girls, stuff like that, but never to where they said that they were being sexually abused by the foster parents. Now you're at this point, you're a caseworker, you're going in and out of homes. Um, I can imagine that that's. Uh really exhausting, mentally exhausting, especially because you don't want to walk away having missed something. That's a lot of pressure, especially it seems like you have good intentions as you're doing so. Um, at any point in this time, you, are you really concerned about other people's intentions, the same people that were wanting to lie on reports and things like that now that you're out in the field? Are you questioning them at all? Oh, yeah. I was always questioning. I knew who to trust and who not to trust. I was like the kids. Um, I had one coworker. I would call her for advice on everything because she was she was like me. You know, I mean, she she wanted to help the kids. And I knew if I had any any questions and I would call her even on because I started noticing that um, 
if you didn't put it in writing, they didn't address it. So like I would say I have this concern and I would be on the phone. Well, that was never addressed because it wasn't in writing. You couldn't follow back on it. So I would call her whenever I had like an issue that I wasn't sure about. And um, she had told me, she even told me, you know, I mean, like she would guide me through it. She would say, put this in writing so that they have to respond to it. And immediately they're responding. They're on it. They're like going. And that's actually when you when I started to really notice. Okay, so I need to play the, the manipulation game that they're playing, right? So how do you how do you manipulate? That was my goal. That was my thing. In order to get anything done, how do I manipulate them to get it done? And that was the game. I mean, it's like mental. I don't even know. There's there's some books on it, I know. <laughs> But was that kind of answer your question? Or? Yeah. So it sounds like at this point, you're having to really put a lot of thought into it. You're having to play chess. You can't just be honest, be like, this is what I saw. This is what I feel. This is what my intent, my intuition is telling me. Um, this is what the child is saying. You can't just be honest and get the appropriate attention. So at this point, you have to kind of create to allude to so something will happen. That's very interesting. Yes. So going towards the end of your career, give us some little feedback on that. Like what is bringing up your boiling point with the, you know, what was the straw that broke the camel's back? Can you re-ask that question, please? Okay. So approaching the end of your career in this whole situation, what was like the the straw that broke the camel's back for you? Obviously, basically, these people are like narcissists that you work for. They're dishonest. You're embroiled in all this corruption. So tell us about going towards the end. Well, it was kind of what, um, what we were just talking about with asking my coworker. So I had this child that had told, I was at a home visit. He told me that the foster parent was drinking and driving with him in the car. And he took me to the fridge. He, and they're not allowed to have beer in the fridge. He said, there's one beer in the fridge. He's like, but she stopped and got a 20 pack and she took the cup and she poured it, you know, beer in the cup and she's driving. I don't feel safe with her. I don't feel safe in this home. Um, and so I had contacted my friend, my coworker friend and said, how do I handle this? Because I know they're just going to put it under the rug. It's not happening. So she said, what you do is you put it in writing. That was where it started. I put it in writing. I put it in an email. I never get a response usually until like, and this was on a Friday. So I, normally they'll, they'll respond on Monday in the meeting if you don't put it in writing. But within 30 minutes, I had my supervisor on the phone. I had the director on the phone. And um, they were both saying, well, did you see beer in the fridge? Yes, it was just as the kid said. Yes, it was beer in the fridge. Um, he doesn't feel comfortable. And I was like, I have a home for him. Because I had an, I had 
there are good foster parents. Not everybody is bad. And I said, I have a good home for him. I can move him there now. And um, they're like, okay. They're like, uh, but don't tell the case manager. Why? The DFATS case, case manager. Uh, because they wanted to address it in-house is what they said. So they call, my supervisor contacts the foster parent. Now this foster parent, I had had concerns about. She wasn't on my uh, caseload that long, but whenever I got a call from her, I always had to calm her down, not the child. You know, I'd have to like have breathing exercises with her and like calm her down and, you know, so he calls her and she's like, yeah, what's, what's the problem? You know, it uh, admits it, don't see a problem with it. So he says, you know, he's going to do a write-up on her. So I contact the case manager and the case manager is like, no, you're not moving him. This is what I'm talking about. So um, she goes, he, he just likes to move from house to house. He just wants to move again and you're not moving him. So whenever you have a disruption, you have to have a team meeting. It's policy. So the team meeting, now this kid had every person on his case. He had a CASA worker, if you know what a CASA worker is. Um, so they advocate for the child. He had a case manager. He had um, me, he, my supervisor, and then the foster parent. And I told him, if you tell the case, if you tell it in the meeting, they have to move you. They don't have a choice. But see, I had to manipulate the situation in order to get him moved. So he tells it in the meeting. So then the case manager is like, all right, now I have to move him. So then they let me move him. And then they did no they did nothing. They didn't report it. Normally what the procedure would have been is you remove the child, you report it to CPS. I was told not to report it to CPS. And then you, um, CPS does an investigation. They determine if that foster home should continue fostering. She had another kid in the house too. And none of that was done because first of all, I didn't report it because they told me not to report it. The case manager on there didn't want to move them. The CASA worker didn't do nothing. So all we did was move it. So then I'm like, so the, the foster parent that I sent him to actually was like, you know what, Sylvia? I think you should report it because if anything happens, it's going to come back on you. So I reported it and didn't tell them. So then, uh, which later on, you know, I, so, and then I gave my 30 day notice. But later on, what happened was the director knew the person that was going to investigate it. And she told her, oh, not to worry about it. They had it handled in house. So they didn't even do an investigation. The foster parents still fostering. But that was my breaking point was like, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you do. They're going to do whatever they want. And then, um, and that was when I started recording their meeting. So I have all of this on recording. Um, and I was going somewhere else with that. Dang it. I mean, let me think about how it's. That, that's okay. 
<clears throat> so at this point, I I would say that the person that told you report it because it's going to come back on you is that was a very smart thing for them to tell you. And I would I would hope that it sucks because I look at good people like you that is doing it with good intentions. And I know that there's so many others that are the same, but they get sucked into corrupt systems, the homes where the kids go. That's about money. Foster parents, being able to foster kids, that's about money. Where you place a kid, that's about money. Not, uh, you know, and then receiving money for those things and then not having to pay the extra expenses, investigation, and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, these kids are, can literally just be dragged through the mud, um, placed in bad situations, and they feel helpless just as much as you feel helpless trying to help them. And you know you can't. Your hands are tied to this and your hands are tied to that. And there's bureaucracy surrounded by everything. So anything that has money involved is going to have bureaucracy involved. And, um, you know, being able to report that, you know, corruption or for what's the, what's for the best interest of the child is so important. So I could see that being a breaking point. It's unfortunate that that's probably forced so many people out in the long haul of things. We look at now, look at how many teachers are leaving. They don't agree with it. They said, I'm not dealing with this shit anymore because it's, it's, you, there's only so much you can do when, when you feel like you're, you're fighting on your own. That's a ter that's a terrible feeling. And even though you you want to do it all for the kids, it comes to be a point where you almost have to choose yourself because in systems like that, you can look at it and just kind of very clearly see that it's not going to change. Right. And this is what I was gonna say. It just came to me. I got called into the office, my supervisor's office. Um, his name is Emery because he said that he noticed that I didn't advocate for the foster parent as much as I advocate for the foster kids. And that was that case. And I was like, yeah, I do advocate for the foster kids more than I advocate for the foster parents. That is my job. But that was the breaking point of when I quit and that that was the day that I put my 30 day notice in when they called me into that office and was like we've been and he said I've heard from your other supervisor which was Cynthia the one that I refused to work under um he and he's like she's told me that she's had issues with you um not advocating for the foster parents and I was like name one time that I didn't that I didn't advocate for who needed to be advocated on Every time there's been an issue, there was a real issue. There was a real problem. I've had lots of problems with foster parents and nothing was ever done. You know, nothing's ever done because if they, if they have foster parents that are closed, if their homes are closed, you can only have so many foster parent closed homes. Then the company is closed, right? So they had already had a few foster parents where their homes were closed. And if this foster parent was closed, that would bring them closer to being shut down. So following putting in your 30 day notice and getting out of that system, you're obviously traumatized from this. I mean, I can only imagine. So 
Okay, let me think how I word this. So upon you leaving, have you received any backlash from the system? From the system or from the from uh, an agency? From the agency you used to work for or anybody in the government, really, for that matter, knowing what you know, knowing that you're speaking out, like, has anybody contacted you, you know, sent you weird emails, anything like that? No, I don't think they know I'm speaking out. Um, every every podcast I've been on has not been in the real media. You know, it's not, they're not well-known programs. Um, they're censored. They're, you know, I honestly don't know. I also changed my number. I blocked every one of them. Like that was the first thing I did when I left was I blocked the director. I blocked the supervisors. I blocked everyone, but like, two of my coworkers because I didn't want to hear it from them because I already knew. And then uh, podcast, um, I don't think they've heard any of my podcasts. I haven't sent it to them. And uh, the system, I had a little bit of backlash when I worked at um, Family Ties, which was where I went when I left there. So I started working as a transporter. And so a transporter, you just basically take the kids to their appointments or their visits and you're a contractor. And so our contract was with DFATS. And I spoke out about two cases I was on. I spoke uh, on to a um, Congress well, she worked at the Congress at one of the offices, and she asked for an investigation into Gwinnett County defects. And Gwinnett County, the commissioner of Gwinnett County defects, um, immediately called my director and um, asked that they fire me. And they didn't fire me. And I think the only reason they didn't was because I had brought a lot of cases with me. Uh, from case managers that I worked with, and, but they took me off all Gwinnett County cases. They told me that I was not allowed to go into um, uh, DFATS and Gwinnett County property. I was not allowed to go on their property. Um, I've had some strange things happen after that, but I don't know if that was DFATS. I think it was Gwinnett County defects, to be honest with you. But it's been strange things. I don't think it was Elts Aidmore. I don't think Elts Aidmore knows that I've been speaking out. Do you hope that all of this is exposed and something is done about it? I hope it's exposed. Um, but it's going to be more on the level of human trafficking and sex trafficking. It's like, I think that's the level where it needs to be exposed um, because uh, you you talked about money and it, it, it boils all down to money, right? And I had posted, which I went on the website to see recently and they had taken down the prices. I'd noticed that the, the, the website was changed where you could look and you could look at every nonprofit organization in Georgia 
and it will list the amount they receive per child, whether it's base or MWA first. So the more trauma, the more money they get. Sets trafficking kids, more money. Runaways, self-harmers, more money. Uh, special ed, uh, mental, more money. And then, um, and it's done so organized that you don't even realize it until you're in the middle of it, right? Um, because they do, they're getting anywhere from 130 to $200 per kid per day. So that's a lot of money. So I, I think when it be, I think when it comes exposed, it's not gonna be about the foster parent who abused the child. It's gonna be, and that, and honestly, that's what I think is what's really going on is human trafficking and sex trafficking because there's too many kids. I wanna back up. So you get X amount of money per child per day based on different trauma levels. If it's a nonprofit organization and they're getting that much per day, where's the money going? Not to the kids, tell you that. But it's it's getting, um, I think it's more of the, the directors and the higher ups and the, um, I mean, I didn't see any of it. I know that the foster parents were making more than I was. I was making, I think, 30 something a year. And they were making like six grand a month. <laughs> so it wasn't me. <laughs> um, you know, it's insane. But not only that, but what I noticed was, and this was hard for me because I had no idea. And I think this is what the real problem is. People do not realize what the system is really about. They don't really know what goes on and they don't see the um, the trauma that these kids go to, to get through one day. Like to get these kids up, get them to school, make them stay in school for the whole day is like, it's a miracle to get them dressed up. They don't, they can't function. They cannot function. But then also, was the fact that every kid that was coming in, most of them were sexually abused. So why are there so many sexually abused kids? Why are there so many sex trafficked kids? I had a lot of sex trafficked kids. Why is there, you know, and that's when I realized that our country had a sex trafficking problem. But that's not uh, talked about in the, in the media. You know, it's talked about on, uh, like small podcasts and things like that. But I think that's really where the issue is. So in regards to the human trafficking and the children involved in that, like where do they come from? Like well, okay, so it's deep fats kids, but we had goals. I don't know. That I think that's where the the research you gotta go down that rabbit hole rabbit hole of uh who's in charge <laughs> i gotcha i gotcha i really um i don't doubt it i don't doubt it it seems like with the reunification like being there like and then them saying 
we need more kids. We need more kids. Like how does reunification with the family fit into bring us more kids, which is essentially bring us more money? Well, it doesn't. <laughs> they don't want you to reunify kids. You know, that was the one thing that they, and this is DFATS, this is CPS, this is all of them when it comes down to reunification. If they want you to report everything on the parent and they want it to be bad, they want it to be, uh, she was late for her appointment. She didn't show up. She didn't, she talks bad about CPS. So you got to stop the meeting. I, I've had that told to me a lot. If they talk bad about CPS, then stop the meeting and we're going to stop visits. So they put in ways to stop reunification. And it's um, it's what's called railroad railroading. So like you basically give the parent um, difficulty so that they can't complete the caseload. Because if you can't complete the caseload, they can't go home, right? And then the other thing is, is um, they give them 15 months to complete the caseload. And if they don't complete it, they automatically go into adoption. Now, that's not to say that they do get adopted because I have kids that have been in foster care for, oh God, 10 years, five years, seven years, eight years. It doesn't, it, like they grow up their whole life in foster care with the cycle constantly. I hate to ask because I see that, you know, during this time, you're trying to have good intentions for, you know, a corrupt and, and being ruled by corruption. <clears throat> Do you, were you ever forced to intervene in a reunification that should have happened? Um, I know we were encouraged to put in our notes um, everything negative. So you're encouraged to speak negatively about the, the parent. You're encouraged to speak negatively about the child because if you speak negatively about the child, that's more money, right? Behaviors. So defiance, talking back, running away, self-harm. You're encouraged to put that in there, but you're discouraged. In fact, we were not allowed to talk about the concerns about foster parent in our notes. That was not allowed. Now, and then the way that the system is, is that the, the supervisor reads through your notes. So you put in your note, it goes to a supervisor. They read over it. And they approve it. If they don't like what's said, they'll delete it. You have to rewrite it. So then you have to get creative on how to word what you want to be heard. Which when I was in school, that was not the case. We were told you're supposed to put your concerns about the foster parent. You're supposed to put the concerns about, you know, it's supposed to read like a book. This happened, this happened. There's not supposed to be like, oh, well you know, like this happened, but this didn't happen. You know what I mean? You're not supposed to pick and choose what you want in there, but that is all that is done is picked and chosen of what happened, what the narrative is, how they want the narrative to be read. 
so that they control it. It seems like everything is like that. And of course, so like training and things like that, they're going to, you have the person that says, this is the way it's supposed to be. They're not going to be training people. And then it's your second day of training. You're excited to be there because you're going to help all the children. They're going to say, well, basically, we're just going to ask you to lie constantly. You're going to have to manipulate. We want to manipulate you. We want to manipulate the system. We want more money, things like that. Because then on day two of the class, they would have to start over because you'd be at zero. I don't know anyone that willingly signs up for that. I think just like when you look at people in the medical in the medical system, um, nurses and doctors and things like that, people do become hardened to what is going on. And a lot of times it's not because of patient interaction. That is the weight of bureaucracy when you get when you turn cold. Um, and it also has a lot to do with, again, money. So it's, it's no different. It's no different. It's the same in every, like almost every bad system. This is exponentially worse, of course, because we're talking about the kids. Like we are to care for the children. We're supposed to care for, um, the, the orphans and, and the left behind. I mean, that's a biblical thing. And then, bureaucracy money. What is that? That's just Satan's tentacles interwined with a place where he should not be welcome. When it comes to kids, everything should be honest and transparent. And now you look at, again, what's happening present day, we're facing more of the same things. And this is not something for, you're at this point, you're dealing with children that don't have parents. They don't have a true advocate. And so that's the very best you can hope for is an honest, agency, honest reporting on them and stuff like that. And then now you look at these, these, the children that do have parents and what's happening to them in school. There is no transparency. I think across the board, it's, it's the 2020 election all, all over again, putting the, the posters up on the window, like, don't look here. You can't see what's happening. It's for your safety. I get that. And I, I'm really sorry that you had to go through this, but I'm very proud of you, um, you know, for speaking up. And and I just, I'm sure that you pray on a regular basis that these children are protected, that the corruption is exposed. I agree with that 100%. So Sylvia, anybody that's listening, what would you encourage them to do in dealing with situations like this? What I tell them is, don't give too much information. Yes and no answers. Don't tell them if you ever had a past of alcohol or you drank too much. Don't do that. Um, lawyer up if they say, if it comes down to the point where they say um, this is not a safe environment for the kids. Um, they don't like lawyers. That's the only way to win in family court. It's the only way, unfortunately. A lot of people don't have resources for uh, family court. Um, well, for lawyers, they don't have money for lawyers and that's what happens. They end up in the system because they didn't have a lawyer to fight for them and they can say whatever they want. They can put in there whatever they want about you. And then the judge listens to the case manager. So, just be just be mindful of how you respond to them because if you get an agent that doesn't like you 
um, they're going to um, give you a harder time. They're gonna, um, it, it's all about how they perceive you. So they, if they come in and they bond with you, oh, you ain't got, you ain't got to worry about it. Have y'all, uh, if you watch the Netflix show, um, I think it's Gabriel Hernandez. There was three or four case managers that came into that home. That child was being abused and they bonded with the mom. And so they, they left them, you know, they didn't really do their job because they weren't really doing their job. It was based all on opinion. And that is really what DFATS is. It's based on their opinion of whether that child is being abused or not. Most of the time, the case manager does not have a degree in social work. Most of the time, they don't have a degree in criminal justice and investigation. It is all based on what they think when they walk in that house, if they liked the way the home was uh, presented to them, if they liked the way you spoke to them, if they liked the way that you interacted with them. If you give them a hard time, because you can say, I wanna see the warrant, um, that causes them to come after you harder. So what I always say is lawyer up. And if you can't lawyer up, there's a lot of, um, information online um i think um i've been the other podcast i did was with divorce matters and that's what he tries to do is give people um information on how to fight family court because um family court is not justice family court is the power of the judge and the power of the case manager and how you fit into their agenda. So um, just be respectful. Be honest. Don't give too much information. Don't say any, don't just don't give any information. Just don't. Well, it almost seems like they're coming in with the intent to take your child. They absolutely are. I actually recently watched um another woman and um what happened was with her she had a son and then she just had another baby and since she has a seizure disorder she hired a nanny because her sleep you know is very important because that's what triggers her seizures so she gets up um the nanny she's like okay the nanny can go home and then she realizes that her kid won't stop crying and she thinks it's because he's teething or I can't remember exactly, but you know, or that he might have a fever or something. Anyway, she brings him to the hospital and then they take the baby to the back, realize his skull is fractured and then CPS comes in, starts like grilling her and you know, the police is there, CPS is there and she's just being a good mother and being honest and saying, you know, the nanny was there, I was sleeping, I don't know what happened, and um, so on and so forth. And then at the end of the day, she's leaving, and her family's going in a different direction, because their CPS is taking control of the kids. She had, fortunately, they were well off enough to lawyer up. But in the whole dealing, I'll make a long story short, 
she was fighting, I want to say, for three years, living apart from her husband and the two kids in the home. The baby ended up being fine. But just fight going through the system. And she's going like, I went to all these classes that CPS, you know, said I had to do. And I thought I was going to go in there with like drug addict and alcoholic mothers and fathers. But no, most of them were just like me. Like one guy, his baby slipped in the bathtub and hurt himself. He brings the baby to the hospital. They take his kid away. Mm -hmm. And that's going back to what she says. Like, you know, where do you get these kids? You know, that's how CPS gets them. Yeah. That's corrupt. That's absolutely corrupt. Right. It's the system. The way that they set it up. It's like with a criminal mind of bringing in money. It's not about the people. It's not about help. And it's not about the people. Um, and I actually know who she's talking about. Uh, Rachel, Rachel Bruno. She's actually really good. She, um, she started advocating and she started, um, I, I've talked to her a few times, uh, but she did. She had the fund to get a lawyer, but if she had not gotten that lawyer, she would, her kids would have been in the system. And it was so tragic. I was crying throughout that whole story, listening to it. And it's just unbelievable the measures that these demonic, you know, people in the system, CPS, foster care, the police, you know, like what the, the lengths they go through to ultimately hurt children is just mind blowing. Power and money. That's all it boils down to is um, they, it's almost like they get addicted to the power and what they can do. Cause I've seen some case managers when they start out and um, they're like, I can't believe this. And they're venting to you. And the next thing you know, they're just like that. And it's, it's like you get either trapped into it to where you either adapt and you go with how they're supposed, they're doing it, or you're just fighting and fighting and fighting until you give up. A long time ago, I came across the Hampstead case about the kids in the UK that were um, satanically, satanic ritual abuse, SRA kids by their father. And that was like one of the first um, things that I learned about like human trafficking and like how dark it is. And, you know, pushing forward down that rabbit hole, you know, if you come to find out that it's like, it's not just these random people or elites or whatever you want to call them, that trickles down from the top to the bottom of any position and power, you know, lawyers and judges and police officers and even teachers, you know, and so it's, I think it's with these systems set in place and this many people that are into molesting kids, trafficking kids, raping kids, raping kids, uh, the abuse. It's like, when you think of it on that scale, how do we stop it? Well, I think it starts with, um, they're, they're pushing it more and more to where it's perverted, to where it's accepted. Like with the transgender, the transgender kids that, um, that they're pushing that, you know, that, that starts with the social work system. You know, I don't know if you realize this, but um, when I was like, we were ha constantly having trainings on 
um, because it's a it's mental, right? So it's it's another way for the psychiatrist, the therapist. Um, but we were having yearly meetings on um, transgender kids, um, gay, LGBT, you know, cis, um, you know, like all these terms. But it's it's pushing that, right? So it's pushing a little bit further and a little bit further. There's not a lot of research on what it does to that child, right? When you start giving them all these uh, hormone blockers and things like that, but they're pushing it closer for the, the younger the age, right? Um, but that starts with the psychiatrist, the, the social worker, the, um, the therapist. Um, think about it. All that money is the medication that these kids are on. Like, I thought it was just like, oh, just a few kids, but it would, it's more the fact, like if a kid comes in without a medication, you're shocked and it shouldn't be that way. And what they're, but it's money, it's money. It's all a cycle. You have to have that cycle in order to get money. I mean, they're just turning those hours the hours the therapists get paid, and they're not really doing anything. All they have to do is bill an hour, right? So it's just a money thing, money thing, but they're pushing it. And that does come from the the social worker, the, the mental side of it. I wonder, um, I'm sure this wouldn't be very difficult to find. So speaking of the medication, you look at uh, these alleged nonprofit organization homes, right? Mm -hmm. I wonder how many or what pharmaceutical companies are donating to the nonprofit organizations. Oh, I'm sure it's it has to be some, you know. Remember when we were kids, they were like, don't take drugs if you're not sick. Mm -hmm. How the world has like evolved into this, this trap. You know, it's like it's almost like if you're a kid, you're damned in this system, you know, unless mm -hmm. you have parents that are, you know, so on point. I think that there's a lot and I'll call them regular people. I think there's a lot of regular people that don't understand that your children are not actually yours. When they're born, they get a birth certificate and a social security card and things like that. They're put into a system. Yeah, and their the, property. Their property. The government. They have, and the government has technically parental rights over your children more so than you. Their power is limitless. At that point, you can't, you can't do anything about it at that point. You can't fight then and there and say, absolutely not. I'm not going with you. You can't say that about your kids. Absolutely not. They're not going with you because they're so it goes from a police officer and a caseworker to 10 more cops. You you stand no chance. You are powerless. How do the kids feel? That's all I keep thinking about is just like, Jesus, I feel so bad for these kids that are wrapped up in the system. I wish that there was, you know, more help, more good people. And um, that brings me back to the basics is we need less government. 
and more militias. More militias. So Sylvia, yes. how, what percentage of these kids that go through the foster system do you think end up addicts on drugs, alcohol, uh, maybe even prostituting? Uh, I mean, the good majority of them do because it, it becomes a normal to them. They live in survival mode in foster care. They don't, they don't have a normal life. And then that, then they get uh, addicted to it. You know, it's almost like they can't survive in normalcy. Um, it's the same thing with a group home. They in, usually end up being incarcerated or in uh, prison because they're so used to that lifestyle, it's normal to them. And so that's the other issue. So, so we, so the government has the cycle, right? So you get the kids, you, they are basically living in survival mode the whole time. They can't function. So then what happens when they become an adult? They end up in jail and then prison. And then you still have this money coming in, right? So that was the other thing with the group home. I don't know if you've heard about the Family First Act. And I always talk about this act because it was something that Trump put in. But it was to stop the the kids. The money's supposed to go to, to family members uh, to take care of the kids. But it also is to stop um, group homes like some kids are in groups home their whole life. So it's supposed to, you're only supposed, a group home is only supposed to be a stop. Like it's supposed to be like you have two weeks until you find a foster home and that's it. These kids are in their five, six, seven, eight years. So in a group home, you have to have a structure, right? Well, the structure is just like the jail. You wake up. You make your bed, you make your, um, you get ready for school. But I mean, it's structured. It's very, very structured. You have staff member. It's this whole um, toxic environment. So that was supposed to help with kids not being in the system when they're as an adult, right? So, but nobody is incorporated this law not really because there's kids still I still talk to some girls that are at the group home and they've been there five or six years so how likely are they going to be able to survive on their own moving on from that uh it makes me think about the process of actual adoption because you said they're kind of they, they're not making the money off of adoption but um who's getting paid when a child gets adopted well, actually, there there is money in adoption. Um, so, and there's different ways. And I haven't figured out all the ways. But, so, um, the not the foster parent gets paid. Not, not them, but the state. And there is um, money in adoption. I can't remember how much it is. Uh, I think it's, I think it's around three three or more thousand per adoption. And that's, um, so there's, they're, they're getting money if they're adopted out. So there's this other, um, that uh, ASPA, that was what um, 
Hillary Clinton put in place in 97. Uh, and that was basically, it was presented as um, if you're to keep kids out of the foster system, right? So that's how they ended up with the 15 month that you have to come up, that you have to finish your caseload. When your child goes into um, the system, they write you a case plan. They tell you the first thing they tell you is you have 15 months to complete that. If you don't, they get it adopted out. So that's where that law came in. So it's presented in a way that you're like, yeah, we want this law, right? We don't want kids to be in the system for five, six, seven, eight years. So this system, allow, this law allows them to get adopted out within 15 months. Well, what it does is it allows them to drag out the process, right? Because then they they drag it out until 15 months to where the parents can't get them. And then they terminate the rights. Then they get adopted. So there's still money. 15 months to a child is like a lifetime. How much damage can be done mentally or physically in 15 months? Quite a bit. Oh, for sure. For sure. Especially in a, a group home environment. Um, where it's just uh, you're in survival mode every moment of your life, you know, so 15 months is really long. All right, Sylvia, thank you so much for being on today. We really enjoyed having you giving us so much crucial information about the foster care system. Thank you so much. The truth train doesn't stop here. Did you know that you can connect with us and our guests further? Join us on the uncensored platform, Telegram, for live chats and Q&A with our guests. Hope to see you there. Before you go, hit follow and share with a friend. Wake up to a new episode of Louisiana Sister Squad podcast every Tuesday.